These are the words by Bishop Ken Untner. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses a faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day may grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they will hold a future promise. We lay foundations that will later be developed. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers. We are not master builders. We are ministers, not messiahs. We are the prophets of a future that is not our own.
Words tell us our thoughts. Silence helps us hear our deeper feelings. In silence, we sense the rhythmic measures of all life in the slow, repetitive rhythm of our own bodies. In silence, we feel the ebb and flow of life's breath as the waves of the larger ocean on which we all live. In silence, we sense a larger spiritual presence of which we are all a part. In silence, we sense the coming and going of human pathways, knowing we can ask no more than to have reached out to others in creative and caring ways. And in this silence, we know it is this human touch that gives the larger journey its meaning. Let us sit in silence and take a deep breath in and out. Breathe again and notice that place in you where a divine spark flickers. This is the spark that inspires and moves us. The people sitting next to you have a divine spark that flames along with yours. Breathe again and draw that connection between you and the community that surrounds you. Breathe again. Breathe life into your growing flame. Now come back. Come back to this community of divine sparks and let this kindle you through the coming week. I've always been a person who searched for meaning. From my earliest wanderings, I remember wondering about the point of life. Even in third grade, I didn't understand God. I remember asking my Sunday school teachers to tell me what this was, and they talked about this visible know-it-all who was overseeing my life, and I thought, that's not right. So I got a bit despondent by the time I was in high school. Many of my friends believed in God, and they went to prayer groups in the morning, but it just didn't make sense to me. But I wanted it to. I was intrigued about the search for purpose and insistent on trying to understand what God was. After high school, instead of going to college, I went to a retreat center. It was in Pennsylvania, and it was led by R.C. Sproul, who was an evangelical minister and I lived there for four months. I read the Bible several times through, and I read a lot of theologians, such as John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you've ever read them. I don't recommend them. <laughs> but I decided to dedicate my life to their conservative theology, to really give it a chance. I really wanted to give it a chance because some very smart people believed these things. So I committed myself to the belief 
that there was a personal God, one who had an individual interest in me. And I knew, I knew that I was saved and I was predestined to go to heaven. God chose me. And he chose those who would not be going to the same place as me. Rather, they would be going to that other place. And it was not because they were worse than me or acted bad. Like other evangelicals, I believed in a salvation theology. And it was based on the foundational belief that all of us are born sinful. And we all are born deserving to go to hell, right from birth. So unless God chooses you, you're going to hell. And if you're saved, it's not because of something you did, because none of us deserve heaven. It's only because God had mercy on you. I loved this theology. It was very intellectually challenging to grasp at the beginning, but once I figured it out, it was very clear to me. It was very black and white, and it resonated with me because it gave me a certainty that I had been looking for that I had not found before. So that leads me to a talk on eschatology. Yep, I know a lot of you have been dying for me to talk about eschatology. <laughs> How many of you woke up this morning thinking, man, a good talk on eschatology is what I'm going for? I suspect a lot of you don't even know what that word means. Okay, there we go. Eschatology comes from two Greek words. The word eschalos, which means last, and logos, which means words. So it's literally a talk about the last days, the last days. So here's something I find very interesting. Oh, I, so it's about heaven and hell. If you haven't figured out what the last days are, I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell, that's the last days. So here's something I find very interesting, and this was, I found, it was when I heard, read this in seminary, I couldn't believe it. There was no discussion about heaven or hell in early Christianity. Jesus did not talk about heaven and hell. There was no mention of sin or damnation for the first 500 years of Christianity. This is a concept that's introduced by church leaders, primarily by St. Augustine of Hippo. It's not a theology that comes from original Christian thought. In order to understand the concept of heaven, we also first have to have an understanding of the nature of God. And this sermon is not about God. It's about eschatology, remember? Go back there. <laughs> so I am sure there are many different beliefs about God in this room. And let me invite you to suspend the debate about whether God exists or not. Okay, so let's move beyond that and jump to a point about God's nature, which is, which is that if there is a God, and this is a loving God, which would have to be the case, because if God were not loving, then we wouldn't be talking about God, we would be talking about Satan, right? Have we got there? Then the love of that God must be inclusive. It would be inconsistent to believe that an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God could ever find it acceptable to have some souls condemned to hell for all eternity. In fact, this is the principal belief that the universalist faith held. 
leading them to separate out from the other denominations. They argued that hell is not someplace we will go when we die, but it is present in this world. When we let greed and violence and exploitation run amok, we are creating hell. Heaven is also here on earth when love prevails. The name universalist comes from the insistence that all souls universally are saved and are going to heaven. This is a very liberating theology. It frees us up from having to figure out if the person sitting next to you is going to the same place you are going to. It's actually what first attracted me to the Unitarian Universalist faith. Coming from an evangelical background, it was so liberating to know that my best friend who was gay was not going to go to hell, that we were all universally saved. We don't have to figure out who is sinful and who is good, who we have to exclude from our faith or not. I also want to talk about the important political and social consequences that come out of a framework of thinking that there is a heaven and hell, that some people are chosen and others are not. The concept that some folk are saved and others are damned allows for a hierarchical mindset. And it goes like this, if I am saved, then I'm better than you who are damned. And if God thinks I'm better, then I get to have more privileges than you who are going to hell. If I have a bigger share of the wealth, it is because I am blessed by God. And if you have less, it is because you are not blessed and you are probably less valued. Those who are poor or who do not even know that God exists have less worth, and so we are not obligated to treat them well. This is the type of belief system that comes out of a salvation theology that has led us historically down to a place where we could believe such a thing as manifest destiny. That is the doctrine that justified taking American land by subjugation and killing the inhabitants. It was believed that God gave this land to the invaders. The native people living on the land were here only to do our bidding, and they had no rights to the land that God was bestowing upon the saved. This eschatology of salvation has allowed many to justify killing others and killing those who are not saved all in the name of God. Another consequence of this type of salvation theology is it condones violence as a religious act. I find it problematic, and I hope that some of you may too, that the central story of salvation would rest on a father killing his son. I'm talking about the notion that God had Jesus crucified. This interpretation is not the original understanding of Jesus' death, but was established 1,000 years after his death. It is a story that has allowed us to sanction violence and glorify suffering. Victims of violence have been told their suffering is God's will, and perpetrators of violence 
believe they are imitating God's way of salvation by punishing evildoers. The evangelicals and Christian extremists who vocalize this way of interpreting salvation get a lot of media attention and a lot of our emotional attention. This distorted presentation of Jesus and the Bible are so hurtful that so many of us want no association with the name Christianity. And yet, that is a minority of people in this country, the people who espouse that type of theology. And we forget that many, most, of the Protestant and Catholic faith do not believe in a salvation theology like that. So I've talked about the problems with eschatology, the consequences of a flawed understanding of heaven and hell. But what is it that we can find in this type of discussion about heaven and hell? What can we as Unitarian Universalists find in that that's useful? Perhaps it's just easier to reject religion altogether. Say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe that. Or perhaps it's easier to say, I'm not a Christian because I refuse to believe in a violent God, or I refuse to believe in eternal damnation. But perhaps, perhaps we can take that theology and shift it. Just move to the side a little bit and look at it from a new angle and understand what it means for us. Instead of thinking that hell or heaven at places we may go when we die, we can recognize that hell and heaven are present here every day on this earth. The Reverend Rebecca Parker, who was the former president of the Star King School of the Ministry, writes this. The problem for Western culture is that we have become disoriented and we think we are outside the garden when we are not. We are treating life here and now as if we were in a barren wasteland, but we have profoundly misjudged our location. There has been no future land promised to us. There has been nothing given to us beyond this earth we are already living on. Early Christians understood this. They believed we were in heaven and if you look at all the artwork for the first thousand years of Christian um, art artwork, they all depict us living in paradise. They took the words of Jesus literally when he said, today you will be with me in paradise. It was only later Christians who developed the idea that hell was a death experience, that heaven was a death experience. We are called to look at where we are presently. Our focus can shift, it can do that shift. Instead of hoping for a better world, some future heaven, we can focus on what it is we have. We can have a responsive hope, recognizing that what is good and wonderful right here where we are, and then treating all living and non-living parts with justice and love and hoping to repair what has been harmed. I remember one afternoon leaving work when I was living in Prescott, Arizona. Prescott is in a, a little bowl surrounded by hills. 
and I was driving home. I came to the top of the hill, and I just glanced off to my left-hand side. And as I looked over there, I saw Granite Mountain. This had been one of those rare days when there were clouds in the sky, and the sun was setting, and the sun's rays caught the clouds in such a way. It was a glorious and surreal display of purple and orange and red, and I was immediately in rapture, and I almost drove off the road. But I had that instant thought, that would be okay. If I could die with that feeling of bliss in my heart, I felt grateful to be part of such beauty. I hope each of you have had moments like this. Perhaps it's when you go into the, your children's room at night and you look at that sleeping face and your heart is just filled beyond words. Or perhaps it's a moment when you're with a friend and you break into uncontrolled laughter so hard and it just fills your heart. Or it could be when you wake up in the morning by the side of a lake as you're camping and you have that cup of coffee in your hand and you see the clouds spilling over the edge of the cliff and you think, this is enough. This is enough. This is that awakening, that experience where we realize we are in paradise and we respond with a natural gratitude for where we are. Instead of trying to get somewhere else, some future heaven, our goal is to be fully here. Mary Oliver wrote this poem called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It, what, it is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Where do you expect to go when you die? For me, I say it doesn't matter. It's where I expect to be each day, to savor this world and this life. That's what matters to me. And let me leave you with this companion thought, because my gratitude for this gift of being here goes hand in hand with my passion about healing the world. Life is protected and saved by those who, who embody presence, wisdom, resistance, gratitude, and humility. Saving our world is a natural, spontaneous response to being present, calling us to use our gifts and human capacity to heal injury, comfort the afflicted, create justice, and offer love. Rumi wrote, there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Blessed be.